But if you don't see it as failing and instead you see it as learning, then you will become more courageous overnight. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. You're in the world of e-commerce, um, and I was actually reading up on your story, and something that really caught my attention is even when you were 13, I believe, if I'm getting the, the age correct, you were, you were always involved with an e-commerce. At that time, it was eBay. What was it about e-commerce at that time that just kind of resonated with you, with you the most? Yeah, when I was 13, uh, I had a bat mitzvah. And when you're a, you know, a Jew in New York, you get all these presents. And I didn't want any of them when I was 13. <laughs> all I wanted was money. Yeah. And so uh, when you're a 13 year old who wants to make money, you turn to Google to figure out how you're going to do that. This is the year 2000. And I learned that I could sell all these presents on eBay. And so one of the things that I quickly learned is that the barrier to entry to sell goods online got completely lowered. All you needed to do was create an account on eBay, be able to photograph your items, write descriptions, and find people who want to buy these products, and you're in business. And that was eye-opening to me that you can quickly build a business on your own with no know-how and a lot of trial and error uh, to get going. And then I quickly learned that I actually had a knack for content and commerce, and I decided to just keep building that and i became the largest garage sale in my town when i was 13 years old that's hilarious i love it well i mean so much of it is instinctive to your point but a lot of it is really around the openness to, to maybe a new platform and I, I think too like i'm assuming when you were 13 i mean ebay was still on the come up for the most part but what was that maybe um the, the resistance for a lot of people to even embrace e-commerce in the past in your opinion I think it's just this belief that they don't know how to do it. Mm. And I have found throughout my career, the reason why I've been successful is because I'm courageous. Most people are scared to fail. But if you don't see it as failing and instead you see it as learning, then you will become more courageous overnight. And I believe that's just what holds people back is their own belief that they don't know how to do it. But listen, none of these jobs ever existed before. Any person who has the like, title Amazon marketing manager, that job didn't exist three years ago. But the people who had that job were brave enough to learn how to do it via trial and error. Yeah, a lot of it is trial and error. And to your point, a lot of it is, is self-taught. So curious for you, like, what was that process? Was it literally just Googling how to sell stuff online, as I did with my podcast, how to start a podcast um, probably four years ago? Yeah, I mean, when I was 13, it was like, just figure out how to use eBay, which, you know, I was able to do at 13 years old. And then I just needed the resources. Luckily, one of the presents that I got was a digital camera from Radio Shack. And so I had the ability to photograph these presents and sell them online. And that's all it took. That's hilarious. I love how things sometimes collide, right? Like you get a nice camera, but at that point, at that point, you probably didn't really think much of it. You're just like, I'm just going to make a couple bucks off of these presents. I don't, I don't really want. Uh, and then here we are, you know, fast forward years later, and it becomes kind of the the center point of of not only your career but much of your life. I mean, it, it's super interesting how that happens. Yeah, life life is funny that way. So so. Walk me through also, before we get into the entrepreneurial side, which obviously I want to talk about with Micmac, but 
a lot of your your experience also hindered on like Gap, and, and you worked at some of the the, the leading corps. I want to say within their e-commerce, the digital side, the branding, the marketing. What what probably was your biggest takeaway? I want to say or lessons learned having worked with a company, let's say like Gap, on their e-commerce side or helping them at least digitize a lot of their practices. Yeah, so I was at Gap 2011 to 2014, and I was a wildcard uh, hire. The company had a decade of declining sales and aging customer base. And the senior leadership team looked around the room, and their target customer wasn't at the table. So they decided to hire me to lower the average age of the customer. Uh, and I was there for three positive years of the company's growth. So net profits of the company at the time increased by 70%, and we knocked a decade off the customer. But what I learned there was that between 2011 and 2014, the media landscape was heralding every direct-to-consumer brand. They're like, direct-to-consumer is the future. Right. And I actually learned something that was quite different. I learned that all of these brands were using Facebook ads like they were heroin. Hmm. And once you hit around $50 million in direct-to-consumer revenue, your cost per customer acquisition gets so high that you are forced to look for alternative forms of distribution. And so while all this was happening, I was also seeing America turn to amazon.com using the Amazon search bar to find Gap products. Gap is still not available for sale as an authorized seller on Amazon. So it was early signs to me that the major e-retailers were about to become the new walled gardens. And my belief was that every brand was eventually going to have to become available for sale at multiple retailers. And the day that that happened, these brands would have the same pain points as Procter & Gamble, as Unilever, as Kellogg's. They would become brands where they don't own the customer. Mm -hmm. And so that essentially led me to build Micmac. So one was working at a big brand allowed me to have a global seat at the table. Right. I got to learn that while getting a paycheck from Gap. So that was pretty amazing. The second thing um, was that I was really able to accelerate my network overnight by working at Gap. You know, I was a young executive. Everyone wanted to work with Gap because they thought Gap had lots of money to give other companies. And as a result, anyone I wanted to have a meeting with, they took a meeting with me. Right. That network eventually became something that I monetized when I built my company, Micmac. So I always tell people like where I am today would have never happened if I never worked at Gap because it really afforded me some incredible opportunities. I love that. And it's, it's, it's kind of surprising to me how it's not often talked about, right? Like you go through the corporate track and for some reason within entrepreneurship, the, the word corporate has such a negative connotation as I'm sure you've probably seen from the outside. But going through that or even going through the academic route, it seems like with entrepreneurship, it's like either you're a serial entrepreneur day one and all you've been doing your entire life is starting businesses or it's it's nothing, right? And I've certainly seen that kind of message being portrayed. But to your point, working with a global corp like uh, Gap offers you a lot that if you had started day one, Micmac, it might have been a very different trajectory, right? Yeah. And I can give, you know, other examples of other founders that have had similar paths to me, you know, where you start your career in corporate America and then you come up with a business idea and you're able to leverage that network. So Jen Rubio, the co-founder of Away Suitcase, like right. 
we grew up together. Our careers have very similar trajectory. We're like the same age. We started our companies at the same time. Um, there's this woman, Melissa, who's the founder of a company called Packview. She was an Amazon executive. She saw an opportunity in the market. She decided to quit her job at Amazon to build Packview. Now her network, she's also monetizing. And so I'm a very big proponent of having an entrepreneurial spirit in corporate America to identify pain points and then go build the solution to solve those pain points and you're off to the races. How, how do you lead change though when you're in a core before we get kind of to the transition side, which is something I also want to ask, but when you're in a place like Gap in an executive role a little bit or a, as a younger executive too, I think that that's important personally to me because I'm kind of in that position, but within capital markets, so I'm, I'm personally asking, uh, curious how it was for you. But when you're in that seat and you want to draw transformational change, specifically from a digital lens, how do you do that without basically, excuse my French, but pissing off people around you? <laughs> yeah, I definitely learned some hard lessons. So, um, you know, I, I was in this unique situation at Gap. And my boss, who was this guy, Seth Bardman, the CMO of Gap, he then went on to become the CMO of Spotify. He, he hired me to be a rebel, be a renegade. He was like, don't ask for permission, just go do. Because he knew the organization needed that radical spirit to have change. That being said, I definitely pissed some people off while I was at Gap. And that was hard because then all of a sudden I learned about corporate politics. And not even corporate politics, this is human nature, even at my own company, like you need alignment. You have to bring people along for the journey. Mm -hmm. And so after um, maybe pissing some people off, I realized I actually need to go build trust with them before I try to do anything else. And so I, you know, I grew up in New York, actually worked for, you know, I ran Global Digital. I worked out of Gap's New York office, but I started to fly to San Francisco every month. And I spent a week there every month because a lot of people in the North America office at Gap had a lot of influence. And I recognized that I needed to really invest in those interpersonal relationships before I tried to do anything. And I had to get them to buy into my sphere of influence. That's what I called it. And essentially, I figured out, like, what's going to get them promoted? And how can my work help get them promoted? And once I could create that alignment with them and show, like, hey, I'm going to help you get promoted, things became infinitely easier. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you're right, though. It's not really, like, I would say all the, just on the politics, but it is, it is really human nature. I mean, it's something that you probably see at all levels, too. Um, that's why I was wondering on that side. So as it relates to wanting to leave the corporate side and start Micmac, I'm curious, like when, I know you mentioned like, you know, you, you built the network, um, you, you, you really learned a lot of lessons through that time, but when was that tipping point for you to be like, all right, this is the time to start this exact thing to solve this problem specifically? Yeah. So it was 2014. And I identified this major pain point. I also um, started to read the tea leaves at Gap. So my boss kind of tipped me off that like he might be leaving. And I think everyone kind of knows this. Like often when you get a new boss, it feels like you're starting over. And I was like, I don't really want to start over. 
And then, um, and I haven't really told this story publicly very often, definitely not on a podcast. So here's an exclusive, but uh, yeah. they, there's a guy named Jared Groost. He's the, he's now the chief strategy officer at snap brilliant guy. Uh, before snap, he was the CEO of Huffington post before being the CEO of Huffington post. He was the head of legal counsel for Spotify before that AOL, like just an amazing executive. And wow. um, anyway, he, knows my dad, they do triathlons together, which this is completely random. I, I bring all this up because Jared became a mentor to me early in my career. And when I was at Gap, he was at Spotify and I went to go meet him at his office, you know, just like a friendly coffee catch up. And he essentially told me that if I don't start a company right now, I will never start a company. And he played out the next 10 years of my life for me. So at the time I was 27. He's like, you're going to want to get married and you're going to have kids. And then you're going to have all these expenses. He's like, right now, he's like, you are single and you have no overhead and your only responsibility is for yourself. This is the best time for you to start a company. Hmm. And I was like, holy shit. He just scared the crap out of me. And I feel like I need to go pursue my dreams of building the next great company that people want to work for. And so it was kind of all of those things combined, the market trends, feeling like my boss was about to leave and the, you know, encouragement from Jared, a mentor that I decided to go quit my job and build Micmac. Did you have the idea before you had that coffee with Jared? Not, it wasn't completely, no, definitely not. So, so you didn't I, have like an ironed out thing, like it wasn't clear yet. No, I just knew there was a market opportunity in the general space that I'd been playing. Yeah. And some of the pain points that I was floating around. And so um, what I decided to do was quit my job at Gap, uh, delete Uber off my phone, because that was taking away a lot of my discretionary income. (laughs) I then subletted my one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, because that was my main expense. And then I decided that I just, like, needed time off. And I had made... uh, I've been always like seed investing. Uh, it's kind of like gambling in many ways. And I always was, I was investing in a lot of my friends' companies. And I mean, literally like, writing like $5,000 checks. And one of my friends' companies actually got bought by Twitter. So I ended up making like, my $5,000 turned into like $70,000. And so with that extra pocket cash, I knew I had some runway and I decided to go travel the world. And I traveled the world by myself. And on my world travels, when I was in Cambodia, I had essentially a yoga retreat in this hut that was run by ran by a Frenchman. Uh, yeah, the idea for Micmac crystallized, and I just like wrote it in my journal. And then three months later, when I was back in the U.S. from Cambodia, I started to pursue building this company. Isn't that hilarious? So, so well, there's a lot to unpack, but one of just one of the points I wanted to make. So, I, I did this quick uh, YouTube video just about how great founders come up with ideas, and oftentimes people think it's like whiteboarding and sitting in a lab with a white coat, you know, around like super smart people. And every single time, and this is exactly one story like it. I've had on the co-founder of Netflix, co-founder of Unchami, which is Spotify, but uh, in, in the Middle East. Um, and, and all of the stories are exactly like that. Like the weirdest, you know, I was on a ski lift and the idea came to me or I was, you know, carpooling with a buddy and I wrote down an idea and it became Netflix. I'm like, what the heck? What is going on here? 
you know, it's someone not telling me what the secret is, but I guess the secret is when you're most creative is probably when you're most inspired, right? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's crazy. So you're in Cambodia. You think of this idea. Are you? Was this the last part of the journey? Uh, no. <laughs> Furthest thing from it. It was like the the tip, the beginning of. I don't oh know. no. Um, <laughs> so what so, did you do? So to like really speed up the story here, um, I came back from my world trip, and I'm like, okay, I got my vision for the future of media and commerce. And then as a first-time entrepreneur, I just thought the next thing you're supposed to do is make a pitch deck that has no validation whatsoever and go get meetings with rich people in New York. And so essentially from September 1st, 2014 to December 30th, 2014, I did a, over 150 meetings with rich people trying to convince them to give me money. And I was able to convince enough people to give me $1.5 million. And then I was like, okay, great. I now can go hire a few people to build an iPhone app. Because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Like you have an idea, you shove it into an iPhone app and that's how you make money. Remember, this is 2014. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in June of 2015, I launched the first version of Micmac, which is the furthest thing from what I do today. The only thing that's the same is the name. If you do enough Googling on me, you probably see this story. But I launched a consumer version of my company where I had comedians hawking products through vertical video. Everything I sold was below $100. Nothing was sizes. People described us as QVC for Snapchat. We were essentially TikTok shopping way ahead of our time. This is June of 2015. And I ran the iPhone business for a year. And then I literally was like, this makes no sense. Uh, From a unit economic standpoint, I needed the size of eBay for this to become a business that people cared about. And what what we did really well was we signed up really big brands like L'Oreal. We were hawking their products to the app. And companies like L'Oreal were calling me and they were like, hey, Rachel, this iPhone app that you created for yourself, could we actually just license it? Meaning, can this become a B2B business? And that's when I was like, huh, some of the biggest brands in the world are asking to license my software. What's this about? Hmm. And in the second half of 2016, I spoke to over 300 brands on the phone. And I literally asked them, why can't you build this yourself? And what I heard back were pain points around creative for e-com, user experience for e-com, and attribution, meaning measurement. And that those three pain points were even more exacerbated when you talk to brands where the majority of their online sales came from places like Amazon, Target, Walmart. Mm. And that's when I was like, whoa, I need to literally change my entire business model from an iPhone app to an enterprise software company to go after the biggest CPG brands in the world that are selling their products at major marketplaces and wholesalers. But I was so obsessed with the name Micmac that I go, I'm going to keep the name. They were like really confused people. Long story short, you know, my company now is one of the fastest growing software companies in the world, but that started January 1, 2017. 
Hmm. So if you trace back the timeline of September 1, 2014, I failed for three years, but I don't see it that way. I learned for three years that got me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt, I I can't even imagine what those three years were like, because I think, you know, it's probably not as flashy as, as being one of the fastest growing software companies. Like that's a tagline that's awesome to say now, but that that's where I, and this is honestly part of the reason why I wanted to start a podcast like this is because these are like the non Richard Branson stories that you often don't hear about, you know, but, but ones that are like close, somewhat close within reach that, you know, can motivate someone listening. Um, so I'm curious, like within those three years, a lot happened, obviously. How do you, iter- for, for aspiring founders listening who maybe have something now that they're in that conundrum of iterating, what I love about what you said is like you were super, super observant to what people were telling you. Yep. Right, like easily, someone could have listened to that and be like, "All right, I guess you know, you're looking for B two B. We're B two C. That's not us. You know what? We're gonna close shop." Like that could have also happened. Thankfully, it didn't. But aside from being attentive, how did you then iterate and figure out exactly where to move after you collected all this consensus? What was the next step there? Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head. The thing about Micmac is that we have our ear to the ground mm-hmm. and we listen to the market. And we are not married to our own ideas. And the thing about me slash Micmac, people join Micmac not because they want to work for a high growth stage e-commerce company. People join Micmac because they want to work for the next great company. And that's what motivates me. My compass is building a culture that treats people with the utmost respect and gives them career opportunities to accelerate their professional growth. And I say this because that's what fuels me. And so after I listened to the market, I then said, okay, I think I have something here that I can now get employees to galvanize around. Now, what I realized was that I needed to make a change in talent, which is the hard, this is the hardest thing about building a business. It is not ideas. It is not execution. It is not strategy. It is people. And as everyone who's listening, you know, builds their businesses, that's what you have to realize. The hard part is not raising money or building a product. The hard part is managing people and scaling people. And making some of the tough, tough decisions, which sometimes people are amazing humans. They just might not be in the right roles. Mm -hmm. And so when I realized that we needed to move the business to an enterprise software company, I had to be brutally honest with myself around what am I good at? What do I suck at? And what gaps do I need to uh, fill to build an enterprise software company? And so I realized two things very quickly. One is folks who built the iPhone app with me, unfortunately, they never worked at an enterprise software company. And I actually needed to surround myself with people who knew how to build enterprise software companies because I didn't know how to do that. So that was like major tough decision number one. Second thing was, okay, what do I need to learn about building an enterprise software company? One is like, I am not technical. So I need to go find a co-pilot who knows how to build enterprise software from a technical standpoint. 
The second thing is I'm incredible at sales, marketing, product vision. Like that's an innate talent, but I've never sold enterprise software company before. So I need to go find a mentor mm. who's done this, who's a go-to-market enterprise software revenue machine to teach me this. And so two people came into my life very quickly. One is Adam Van Lenti, my CTO, who's been with me for four and a half years. I always tell people he took the biggest risk out of anyone because I had nothing when I convinced him to quit his job to join me. And the second is a woman who uh, has become a great friend, but is an advisor to me in Micmac, and her name's Melissa Greenberg. Melissa has built and sold three different enterprise software companies. She is a like CRO, chief revenue officer machine. These two people sat by my side all of 2017 in a two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, and we built this thing together. Can I ask you a question, Rachel? So, um, obviously, the, the the people aspect, I, I can I can feel how how obviously important that is, and un- unfortunately, I don't think there's like a blueprint for it. You know, there's a roadmap on how to raise capital, somewhat. You know, there's a roadmap to your point on. On maybe scaling or whatever, but when it comes uh, when it comes to the people side, it's it's probably more subjective. It's very intuitive in nature. You're going to make mistakes certainly on that. Um, I, I am curious with regards to the CTO and your mentor, who I guess became the CRO. What was your process in actually finding those individuals? Is what I'm intrigued by. Yeah. So um, it was learnings from the past. So. Um, what I realized on, on the technical side is um, there's kind of two types of engineers. And I, listen, I'm, I'm generalizing right now, and there's really probably 50 types of engineers, but for the purpose of the podcast. Yeah. There are um, engineering leaders who are like extremely technically proficient, and that's where they get their energy from. Like they want to solve complex problems with code. But they have a difficult time translating that into normal business speak. There are then engineering leaders that actually get their energy being that bridge. Like they know how to talk business. And I knew based on you know, my experience the last three years of the first version of Micmac that I really needed a technical leader that knew how to speak business. And so when I identified that, I reached out to my network. And ultimately, this this awesome guy named David Gorowski is the one who connected me to Adam. And I had a very clear picture in my mind of the type of technical leader that I needed. And because I had such clarity based on my past sort of mistakes or learnings, I was able to get connected to Adam because when I explained to my friend David what I was looking for, he goes, I know the exact guy for you. And he connected me to Adam. On the go-to-market revenue side, um, I was talking to a friend of mine named Greg Lieber, who now uh, leads partnerships at Twitter. At the time, he was at Vayner Media working for Gary Vaynerchuk, who's one of my earliest investors. And I essentially you know, said to Greg, listen, I'm going to probably move the business model from an iPhone app to an enterprise software platform. Do you know anyone who could teach me enterprise software sales? And he was like, I know the exact woman. 
And it was that level of vulnerability, mm. right? I, cause I admit what I don't know. And people are like, oh, I know the person who can help you. Yeah. And a big thing about leadership. And I think one of the reasons why I've been successful in my career is because I'm really vulnerable. I do not pretend to be something that I am not. Mm. And I am so self-aware at what I know and what I don't know. And I will publicly talk about it, even with my board. I'll, I was on the phone with uh, Danny Stein, one of my board members, and I go, Danny, I'm probably going to say something out loud that I should know, but I just want your gut check. And I told him. And he was like, no, Rachel, your insects are correct. Mm. But if I was scared to be vulnerable with my board member, we wouldn't be able to have these intimate conversations. And the feedback that I get, you know, I have a very professional board, you know, they invest in dozens and dozens of companies. They were like, Rachel, we wish more founders were as vulnerable as you. I don't know why people put on an act. It's okay to not know things. That's how you learn and you grow. Yeah, it's, it's and the, the, just the one other thing I'd, I'd mention is it's not just about being vulnerable, but it's the, your ability to, to be okay with asking for help. Yes. Right? right? It's like this caption, like entrepreneurship's a lonely road. And while it could be, I feel like the, the other spectrum to, to maybe as a solution to that, right, is, is to actually go out and ask. For, and you'll be surprised by how many people are actually willing to help you uh, if you just ask for it instead of maybe trying to be like a know-it-all, right? Which is tough too, because you're the CEO, right? You're the leader. I'm assuming that like when you're in that, it, it's so tough, man, to, to have that ego check, you know, because people are coming to you always for answers. So to, to go to someone and look them in the eye and be like, listen, I don't really know what I'm doing. That is really difficult, you know? Um, kudos to you on that. Uh, so where is Micmac today? For those who don't know, I know you, you obviously did a big financing. I was going to ask about the, Vayner connection because I saw one of your speeches with Vayner speaks, so I assumed there was something there. I wasn't sure, uh, but curious. Like if you so we talked about fourteen to seventeen, twenty seventeen to twenty twenty. Um, what has been the growth like, and, and what what's going on moving forward? Um, it's been crazy. <laughs> uh, Where to start? I, I mean, the the number it just sounds ridiculous, but you know, January one. 2017, when I made the pivot to enterprise software company to now, from a revenue standpoint, we've grown 2,700%. Um, but to you know, put that in a more frame of, better frame of reference, last year, we grew 139%. I'm going to do the same this year. Let's go. Yeah. So it's, it's been pretty wild. That's crazy. Wow. Wow. Kudos on that. I mean, that's very, very difficult to do. Um, and it's like often talked about, especially in my industry, like I work in public markets. Um, mm -hmm. so it's like those numbers are often interchanged and you're like, you know, they kind of like you become desensitized to them. But I don't know if, if folks hearing like know how difficult that is to actually achieve that, you know, from day one. So kudos. thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's, I don't, I don't it's think that's good enough. But uh, it's wild. Yeah. And, and what do you think is, I mean, as you see, I just want to hit on this before we get to the kind of just the lessons learned and more on the generic stuff. But the, the one thing is, so if you look at, at, at the kind of growing market of e-commerce, right? 2020, $860 billion was spent online. Amazon accounted for a third of that. Stark uh, growth in terms of what we've seen in the past years, that's probably not going to stop anytime soon. But what do you think is probably the biggest change that you expect to see 21 and beyond within e-commerce? Um, I would say... I think it's really going to become about omni-channel commerce. 
that the behavior of buy online curbside pickup is going to become more and more prevalent, not just in grocery, but in all of specialty retail. Um, and so uh, having an infrastructure that allows you to have attribution online and offline is going to be paramount. So I see that as a major thing. Uh, the second thing I would say is a continued focus on cross-border commerce. The consumer today is global. True. And to think about the consumer in that way and to be able to personalize your experiences in that way and have audience segmentation and the right inventory um, is all going to be part of the game. Do you ever see retail dying? No, retail is just changing. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of retailers realized during the pandemic is that their competitive advantage to Amazon is the local inventory distribution centers. So, mm. you know, take one of my partners like Petco. Petco during the pandemic was able to get product faster than it, to the end consumer than Amazon hmm. because they have local distribution centers, AKA their stores. And so that's a competitive advantage. And that goes back to my comment of buy online, pick up in store. And so I think retail will continue to evolve. It's a local distribution center. It's a place to build a brand experience. Um, and you'll see that play out more and more. Love it. Uh, Rachel, my, my last question for you. Um, so you're also an investor with Clio Capital. Um, they basically, uh, I believe, make seed investments, um, or, or sorry, you you make seed investments on behalf of Clio Capital. Mo mostly the focus is on minority founders, i.e. women, people of color, LGBTQ. For maybe those listening, I'm, I'm curious, like what advice would you give to minority founders, especially ones that you've helped uh, invest in in the past? Yeah, Um I would say the, one of the biggest things is invest in your own voice. So when you're fundraising, you have to be an incredible public speaker. And sometimes that's not your natural skill. Any recommendations there on what to do? Yeah. Take an improv class. Yes. Improv gives you confidence in your own voice and teaches you how to think fast on your feet. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is your best resource is other founders. So network with other founders, have them review your pitch deck. They can help make introductions to their investors. But when you get to the point where you're ready to start pitching investors, meet with investors that you know you will not take money from first because right. you want to mess up with those people. So when you're ready for the big time show with the people who are the real time investors that are right for you, You've really finessed your pitch. Love those two pieces. Thank you so much, Rachel. I, I, well, first of all, I really appreciate you highlighting that full story. We went into uh, obviously a lot of pockets, but I just want to leave the audience. Uh, you do you do host uh, or co-host, I want to say, a podcast called Brave Commerce Podcast, uh, which you guys can check out. Obviously, feel free to to connect with Rachel. There's, there's no um, short of presence, I would say, on social. So thank you again, Rachel. I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.